Today we're doing another one of our Q&A Sundays, as we've mentioned, uh, and this is the second of our Q&A Sundays that come out of our Epic series that we did all the way through Term 3. And uh, so if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we dug into the first half of the series and the first half of the questions that uh, came up from that, questions around creation and the fall, uh, questions about how the Bible came to be put together. And uh, so if it's helpful for you to go online and to have a listen to those, uh, you can listen to them through our website or our Facebook page or you can subscribe to our podcast and uh, you can get all of those. And so today we're going to look at the second half of the series and some of the questions that come specifically out of Jesus' death uh, and then a number of questions that are related to heaven and death and how that all works together. So strap yourselves in. Uh, there are We got lots and lots of questions throughout the whole series, which was great. And there are a number of questions that we won't have time to get to today. There was actually too many questions. So rather than sit here for an hour... I thought you'd probably prefer that I defer some of those questions, so I have kept them. But if you had asked a question that we don't get to today and that we didn't answer last time, then please come and have a chat with me afterwards uh, or through the week. I'm happy to unpack your question specifically if we don't get to it today. So first question we're going to look at is this. Uh, actually, we're not going to do that one, so I forgot that I cut that one as well because we didn't have time. So next question. Ripping through them already, very quickly. All right, so what do we mean when we say Jesus died for our sins and how is it relevant in the current times considering Jesus died on the cross more than 2,000 years ago? So this is a really, really great question and a really important question because I think sometimes we can forget that for people who didn't necessarily grow up in the church, some of the terms that we use on a regular basis, a simple statement like Jesus died for our sins makes a lot of sense to some of us, but to people who are newer to the church or people who are newer to exploring Christianity, that statement actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense, let alone the reality of, well, what does that mean in terms of the ongoing relevance of a statement where Jesus died 2,000 years ago? So this is a great reminder about how we need to stay sharp on our language and uh, make sure that we're explaining things. So first part of the question, what do we mean when we say Jesus died for our sins? For us, as we unpacked, uh, particularly in episode five of the series where we talked about satisfied, our belief is that Jesus died on the cross and that Jesus, in dying on the cross, took the punishment for all of what we call sin. And we've unpacked the word sin to be selfishness. Uh, that sin is really those choices that we make that aren't based in others-centered love. And every time that we make a choice that is about selfishness, that ultimately leads to brokenness of one kind or another. And we talked during the series about the reality that every time we choose selfishness, which leads to brokenness, there is a cost that's involved in that. There's some price that needs to be paid in order to make things right. And we believe in a God who is a just God, who is very passionate about justice, and therefore God can't just say, oh, well, never mind, we'll just pretend that never happened. A price needs to be paid for all of those times when we don't live the way that God created us to live. The good news for us is that we believe that Jesus died in order to pay that price once and for all, to deal with that once for all time so that it's all finished and it's all done. And so when we use the phrase, Jesus died for our sins, that's what we're saying. Jesus paid the penalty for all of those selfish choices that we make that ultimately lead to brokenness. So how is that then relevant today? That's a statement, Jesus died 2,000 years ago for our sins. What has that got to do with us today? Well, our understanding is not that Jesus just did that and that he died for the sin of that moment when he died on the cross. 
But that in actual fact, Jesus, because of who he is, because he's God himself who comes to pay that price, deals with all of the selfishness, all of the brokenness for all of history. Everything past, everything present, and everything that's going to happen. And the Bible gives us a lot of clarity about that. There's lots and lots of verses that help us to understand this better. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. And so this is the reminder of what we talked about early in the series, that one choice where we made to walk away from God's best caused death to enter into our existence. So if one choice could do that, Paul then goes on to say, how even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, making us right with him, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So this is a great reminder that if we believe that because of the choice that one man, Adam, made to walk away from God's best, surely Jesus, who we believe is God himself, can do something that's even more amazing than that and deal with sin once and for all eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, I passed on to you what I received, which is of the greatest importance, that Christ died for our sins, as is written in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, for, the, for by the blood of Christ we're set free, that is, our sins are forgiven. And 1 Peter chapter 3 says, For Christ died for our sins once and for all, a good man on behalf of sinners, in order to lead you to God. So all of those verses and a number of others help us to understand that this sacrifice that Jesus made, his death on the cross, somehow manages to forgive all of us for all of the sin throughout all of history. And so what Jesus did on the cross echoes throughout eternity. All sin is forgiven. Everything that has happened, everything that is happening now, and everything that's going to happen in the future. So as we come back to this question then about, well, how's that relevant to us? It's good for us to remind ourselves about what the system was like in the Old Testament, that we talked about how in the Old Testament there was a sacrificial system. So in order for you to be forgiven for your sins, for the things that you do that aren't God's best, you would have to go to the temple. You would have to confess and say, I messed up in this area, I did this to this other person, and so then a sacrifice would be made. And that sacrifice was important for two reasons. It would help you to understand that the long-term implications of brokenness lead to death. And so the sacrifice is death, but it's also this visible reminder that that price has now been paid, that blood has been spilled, life has been spilled, and so now everything's okay. You have been forgiven. And so that would be a regular practice, that you would go to the temple and you would do that. You would be reminded, okay, it's not okay for me to live against what God's best is, but also that I am forgiven. We don't have Jesus standing in front of us constantly saying, hey, don't forget that I sacrificed (laughs) to remind us about the choices that we make that aren't God's best, nor do we have Jesus standing in front of us saying, you are forgiven. And so we need to be conscious of that to practice things that help us to remind us of what Jesus has done, which is why we have communion every week. This is the reminder for us, as Ashok's going to talk about later, that this is the sacrifice that has been made and it is finished, it is done, it is over. And so that means that we can do things like what it says in 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins to God, he'll keep his promise and do what's right. He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all our wrongdoing. 
And we've talked about how that's not a conditional statement. It doesn't say, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us, which can imply, if we don't forgive our sins, God won't forgive us. It's actually more of a promise. When we forgive our sin, uh, when we confess our sins, God will always forgive us. And so this practice of us confessing, saying, yes, I messed up, is a really important thing for us to do, to be reminded about what Jesus has done for us. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're reminded, this verse in verse 24, that Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. It's a reminder that if Jesus has done that, if that is true, then we've been set free. So live like it. Don't allow sin to reign in your life. Don't allow selfishness and brokenness to dictate your decisions. Let go of all of that. Choose to say, Jesus has killed all of that way of life off, and so now I'm going to live for what is right. All right, next question then. This one's a fairly long one, so uh, we'll go through it and then we'll unpack it as we go. So Christians talk about Jehovah, Muslims talk about Allah, Hindus talk about Bagram, all names of God. Other religions also talk about God and salvation. So how is it that God and salvation is different for all, different for the different religions? And then over the page. Buddhism talks about how an individual has to do things to reach Zen. In Christianity too, even if it was God's plan, salvation is individual. The individual has to choose to accept it. So what's the difference? In both, I have to do the choice and not God. So this is a fairly complicated question, but at its core what it's saying is what a lot of people around us would believe, which is that all religions are basically the same, right? Like all religions have a God, and so isn't it all just the same? Isn't it ultimately all about love? Can't we just all work together? And then this second question that comes out of that to say, so if all religions are about making choices, then how, what's the difference? Like how is Christianity any different to any other belief system around us? This is a very, very important and helpful question. So we do believe that all religions and all belief systems effectively have a path that you walk. And if you walk along that path far enough, then there's a destination for you. Ultimately, you get to the end of the path and that leads you to heaven or it leads you to freedom from pain and suffering or it leads you to enlightenment uh, for something like Buddhism. But ultimately, there's a path and you have to make the right choices. You have to be able to do the right things, avoid doing the wrong things or for something like Buddhism, you have to practice letting go of desire or letting go of suffering. And if you do those things well enough, then you'll walk far enough along the path that you'll ultimately get to the end destination. That's what the goal is. Live by the religious laws, follow the practices, and then you'll end up where you need to be. But ultimately, it is my choice. It's all up to me. So the more that I get that right, the further that I get along the path, the times when I get it wrong, I actually kind of step back a bit. And my hope is that by the time I die, I've done enough that God, whatever God looks like, will accept me and embrace me and therefore I'll be able to enter heaven, reach enlightenment, nirvana, whatever it might be. Christianity is the one that's different though because it's ultimately not up to us. As we talked about just before, our belief is not that it's about us walking the path and doing enough good that we can hope that God will accept us. We're accepted because of what Jesus has done in his life, death and resurrection. End of story. It's not about us trying to work hard enough to earn something. It's about what has already happened. We don't strive for acceptance. We don't hope that when we get to the end of our life, we've done enough. 
we live out of the freedom of what's been given to us. And so it is still a choice in a sense, but the choice is, will I accept what's already true? The choice is, will I say, yes, this is the way things are and now I'm going to live like it, whereas all other religions and belief systems, uh, will I choose often enough that I can hope that I end up getting accepted? Another way of talking about this is an image that we've used before, which is the idea of mountains in a mountain range. That if we think about every religion and belief system in the world as being mountains in a mountain range, we can understand that our goal ultimately is to try and get to the top of the mountain. That by the end of our life, we hope that we will reach where God is, or we will reach enlightenment, or we'll reach whatever the goal is. If we climb, if we do the right things, we climb further up. If we make mistakes, we fall a bit further down. We kind of hope that ultimately we'll get to the top by the end of our lives. Christianity is the only one where God himself comes down off of the mountain, to the bottom of the mountain before we've even started climbing in the person of Jesus, scoops us up and puts us on top of the mountain. It's not about us having to climb far enough. Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be where God wants us to be. And God effectively says, look around you. Can you see things from my perspective? Can you see things the way that I see them? It's not about you trying hard enough. It's about you embracing what has been done. And so there is a choice that we make, yes, on a daily basis. Will we accept what God has done for us? But it's not a conditional choice like every other belief system is where we have to do enough in order to be able to earn it. All right, next question. If heaven is life with God, the way that life is meant to be, which we talked about through the series, then how does the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth change how we live and prepare for eternity? How can we experience heaven when we're still living in a world of sin, when we're still human and likely to sin, no matter how good we try to be? So this is one of the big mysteries and one of the big paradoxes about what it means for us to be people who follow Jesus. And we sum it up with this statement, the now and the not yet, the now and the not yet. That we do genuinely believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be able to experience life the way that God designed it, in the here and now. We also believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be able to experience that in eternity, 100% of the time. But we also know that that's not what our daily experience is, that all of us experience brokenness and experience choices that we make which we know are not aligned with God's best. That's what our daily reality is. And the thing that gets in the way of that is not God. God's not the one who stops us from experiencing life the way he designed it. We are. Again, it comes back to our choices, that when we choose to walk away from God's best, that stops us from being able to experience what God's best is and allowing other people to experience that as well. And so when we are the best versions of ourselves, when we are living out of the freedom that Jesus has given us, we get to experience what we talked about in the series as those echoes, those glimpses of what eternity is going to be like here on earth. But it doesn't happen all the time, and so we kind of get caught in this tension. So, as the question says, how does the Holy Spirit then change all of those dynamics? This tension that we feel about knowing that we should be able to live this way, but we don't live this way, how does all of that have an impact on us? The Holy Spirit, we believe, is God's presence inside of us. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to be able to experience God's love. The Holy Spirit is the one who we believe encourages us, who convicts us, who helps us to be able to live the way that God wants us to be able to live. And I actually think that the question answers itself in some ways about what the role of the Holy Spirit is. That the Holy Spirit is here to help change how we live. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit in us is the one who changes us and transforms us more and more to be like Jesus and to live the way that we're supposed to live. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us when we choose to walk away. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who helps us to say, you're better than this. You can live the way that God wants you to live. That's the Holy Spirit that's at work in us. But the Holy Spirit does also prepare us for eternity when we will get to experience this 100% of the time. And I think that way of thinking about it as the Holy Spirit is preparing us for eternity is helpful. It's kind of like us thinking about training for a marathon or training for a sporting match, that we're doing all of these things so that when the time comes, we'll be able to thrive and be able to do the very best that we can do. It's a great way to think about what life is, that we are now training for eternity. The Holy Spirit is helping us to get ready for what eternity is going to be like. We don't have to wait for it. We can practice that now. We can get better and better at it so that when we get there, we're really good at it and we enjoy it to the best that we can. Another question that's semi-related to this uh, whole thing about, well, what about the now and not yet, is if God's plan is to unite people together, as is said in Ephesians chapter 1, when the time is right, will all of this happen on earth? What about the people who have passed away before the right time? So the verses that are being referred to uh, come from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. It says, In all God's wisdom and insight, God did what he had purposed and made known to us the secret plan that he'd already decided to complete by means of Christ. This plan, which God will complete when the time is right, is to bring all creation together, everything in heaven and on earth with Christ as the head. And so this is part of our belief that at a certain point in time, when the time is right, God is going to ultimately unite everything, bring everything together so that we get to experience what God's original intention was for us, as we've already spent a little bit of time talking about. Now, when is that going to happen? This is one of the answers that we don't know. We don't know when that's going to happen exactly. Different translations talk about it happening at the right time, when the times reach their fulfilment, at the end of time. But when that is exactly, we don't have a clue. But what's fascinating is that Paul seems to be saying that some of what we're waiting for, from God's perspective, has actually already happened. And so this we're going to try and dig into, but it is exceptionally complex, so we'll see how we go. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, so a few verses earlier, Paul writes this. He says, Let us give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in our union with Christ he has blessed us with, by giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly world. Even before the world was made, God had already chosen us to be his through our union with Christ, so that we would be holy and without fault before him. And then a few verses later, in chapter 2, Paul says, God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only because of God's grace that we have been saved. For he raised us from the dead, along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms 
because we are united with Christ Jesus. So here again, we look at these weird tensions. Paul is saying at the end of time, when the time is right, all of these things are going to be fulfilled. But then he gives us this massive list of all of these things, which using certain tense, he implies have already happened or are already true. And this is a part of why I absolutely love the book of Ephesians, because this is a small summary of what Paul says has already happened. Let's have a look at all of the things that Paul says are true of us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's not something that's going to happen. Paul says that is something that has happened. We have been blessed. We have been chosen to be wholly set apart and without fault, blameless. God has already made the decision that that's how he sees us, past tense. We have been adopted into God's family. That has already happened. God has revealed his plans to us. It's not going to happen later. It has happened. We have been united with Jesus. We have been given an inheritance. We have been given life. We have been raised from the dead already, which is interesting. So Paul's saying this is something that has already happened. Even more interestingly, we have been seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. Paul says that's a true reality for us right now. As we sit here today, we have been seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. We have been created to do good things. God has these plans for us to be able to do good things. So this is kind of weird, isn't it? This reality that all of that is true about us right now. Yet it's something that we believe is going to be true for us in the future. It's this interesting tension that we have to lean into and to say from God's perspective, who exists outside of time, all of these things are true. We struggle to understand that because we're human. And so for us, time is linear. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. But for God who exists outside of time, these things are true. They have been true since before the beginning of the world. These things are true of us as we sit here. That's God's perspective. That's how he sees us. So the challenge Paul gives us is to say, live like it now. Don't wait. Recognise that's true and live like it as you are. So coming back to the question then, well, what happens in this in-between time, particularly for people who die before the times are complete? So it's kind of what happens to us when we die is effectively the question. And regularly when scripture talks about death, it actually uses the same word that is used for sleep. That's generally the word that is used. Death equals sleep. The Greek word that's regularly used in the New Testament is the word that's used for sleep. And so the default understanding that's there most of the time is that when we die, we effectively fall asleep. And then all of us ultimately will wake up when Jesus comes back. Here's a couple of examples of that. And whenever the word dead or death is used in these verses, the literal translation would actually be fallen asleep. So just keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies, falls asleep, because we uh, all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says a similar thing. 
And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who've died, fallen asleep, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. And we'll just pause there. That's a really good reminder and challenge to us. Do we grieve like people who have no hope? Or do we grieve? We're still allowed to grieve. But do we grieve like people who have hope, who do believe that this isn't actually the end? It's a really good challenge that gets thrown in there. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So there seems to be this understanding that for the people in the Old Testament, for the people in Jesus' time, for the people since then, for us who die before Jesus comes back, that effectively what will happen is that we will fall asleep. And then ultimately, at the end of time, whenever that is, when Jesus comes back, all of us will wake up and we will be raised to life in Christ. However, I'll just throw this little twister in the middle of it. Jesus seems to say something completely different to all of that, which complicates things further. When Jesus is hanging on the cross next to one of the criminals, who is also about to die, in Luke chapter 23, verse 30, uh, 43, Jesus says to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And what's even more mind-bending about this is this is before Jesus' resurrection. So this is where my head just gets done in because of the complexities of saying, we believe in linear time, but God exists outside of time. And somehow for Jesus, he recognises that for the man who was next to him on the cross, he's about to die and today is going to be raised to life with him in paradise. So maybe we fall asleep and then we wake up, but it's as if time hasn't passed at all. The short answer is, we don't really know. It is very complicated and we're not sure. What we do know is that we won't miss out on experiencing it because Jesus has given us that promise that whatever it looks like and whenever it's going to happen, we are accepted, we are welcomed, we will get to be a part of it. But we're also challenged by Paul to say again, as I've said a few times, let's live like it now. We don't have to wait. All of these things are true. All right, next question. Can you please explain the soul and the spirit where does both fit in when we're still alive and then when we die? So as you can see, all the questions that got sent in were really easy, low-ball questions this time. Super, super easy ones, no challenges at all. So what is the soul and what is the spirit? And what happens to us when we die for both of those things? Well, there's lots of different meanings, again, throughout Scripture about what those two words mean. Uh, for us in English, we do the same thing. So when we talk about the soul, we talk about soul food or we talk about soul music or we talk about save our souls, SOS. So we've got all these different meanings of it. And when we talk about the word spirit, we have all these different meanings as well. So the spirit of something, the essence of something, drinking something that is a spirit, uh, a spirit as in a ghost. There's all of these different ways in which we use the word. But in scripture, the general ways in which these two are used is this way. The spirit is regularly the same word that's used for breath which I think is really helpful for us to understand. So whenever we read about the spirit, we're actually talking about the breath of God. And so when we talk about our spiritual selves, we're talking about that part of us that God breathes into, the part of us that connects with God, the part of us that is in our deep connection and relationship with God, the breath of God within us. The soul, on the other hand, is generally thought to just be kind of the essence of a person. So what makes us us? Our personality, our character, the things that help us to be the people that we are. 
So, what happens to our spirit, God's breath in us when we die? And what happens to our soul, the us part of us, when we die? Well, the spiritual part of us, we believe, is what gets resurrected. That ultimately, if that's God's breath in us, it's not about us at all. God is the one who is continuing to breathe in us. And so we do believe, almost everyone would say, our spiritual selves are resurrected. That part of us that connects with God is resurrected and lives for eternity. The soul is a little bit different. So most people would agree, but not everyone, that our souls are also resurrected. And the reason why this is important is because we believe, most of us, and I certainly do, that there has to be a way of us recognising each other when we get to heaven. That there is a sense where we will know each other. One of the ways of understanding that is to say if our soul is resurrected, if our personality and our character, those things that define us as us, are resurrected, then we'll be able to recognise each other because we'll be able to know, okay, this is this person that's in front of us. So we don't know definitively, but those are a couple of general answers that we can have. The next question then follows on to that to talk about what about the physical part of us. So what happens after our death? Will we live in eternity? With Jesus' image of heaven, like a house with many rooms, why do we need a house and a room if we don't have a body in heaven? Which is a really great question. So often when we think about this, we think about a mansion or we think about a gigantic hotel and by default we think about a room or the room's probably got a bed in it. So it is this good question. Why do we need all of those things if we don't have a physical body. So this comes from John chapter 14, verse 2, where Jesus says to his disciples just before he dies, there are many rooms in my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. So do we get resurrected with a physical body where we need somewhere to lie down and to be able to sit? Again, we don't know the answer to this. But I would want to refer back, as we try to do as often as we can, to Jesus. What do we recognise in Jesus' resurrection? That there's an element where Jesus physically comes back to life. After Jesus' resurrection, he eats with his disciples, which is not a spirit or a soul thing, that's a physical thing. Jesus was also able to hold his hands out and allow his disciples to be able to touch the wounds that were inside of him, implying that there is a physical nature to Jesus. But we also know Jesus could walk through walls. So the physical nature is not necessarily the same as what we experience here. So if you can walk through a wall, you probably don't need to lie down on a bed. So do we need a room? Do we have physical bodies? We don't know. Paul sums it up this way, which I think is actually really helpful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we've looked at a lot, verse 42, Paul says it's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. So Paul uses this really helpful imagery that when we plant a seed, it doesn't grow up as a seed. It grows up as a plant, which is something very different. And Paul also reminds us that these bodies that we have get broken. They break down over time. They're not as good as they once were for all of us, especially as we get older. So we obviously can't take these bodies into heaven. So Paul seems to be saying that when we get planted in the ground, when we're buried, when we die, that we effectively grow into something else, some other type of physical body. 
Now, what that is exactly, it's another one of these questions we don't really know, but there is an element, again, of being able to recognise each other that I think is important in that. All right, we're going to look at three more questions very quickly. These are real quick hits that we're going to do just to be able to finish off our time together. People knew of nakedness after Adam and Eve at the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Will this reality of nakedness and other things similar remain like that in the new heaven and earth? Or is God going to wipe away all of our memories and thoughts, like formatting the brain? So this comes from what we looked at in the last week of the series, Revelation 21.4, which says, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, from our eyes. There'll be no more de death, no more grief or crying or pain, for the old things have disappeared. So it's this question to wrestle with, to say, okay, well, if we believe that in eternity, in heaven, we are not going to experience pain or grief or sadness, what happens to all the memories that are attached to those emotions? What happens to all of those things that have hurt us when we've been here on earth? Where do they all go? Again, we don't know the exact answer to this, but here's a couple of thoughts from my perspective. One is maybe we can interpret those things in different ways. Maybe our perspectives and our perceptions, particularly about the ways in which other people have hurt us, that we can understand them in a deeper way and therefore some of that stuff gets recalibrated. And instead of feeling pain and sadness and hurt, we feel compassion or we feel a sense of connection or a sense of love towards that person, which are things that we believe are attached to God. So maybe we can see those things changed in the way that we understand what those memories are like. I also think it's important to recognise that some of the things that we are the most sad about, and for me, I think specifically about the experience that some of you have had where you have lost a child, to recognise that is a devastating thing to go through that has a lot of sadness. However, our belief is that in eternity, in heaven, you'll be reunited. And so you don't want the memory of that all deleted. There's a sense where that's going to be so amazing because of the sense of loss and the sense of sadness that was there. It just won't be felt as sadness and loss. There'll be a sense of reunion that kicks in. So we don't really know, but I don't think that it's God just formatting our brain, deleting everything bad that's ever happened to us. Another way of thinking about it is an image that the Bible often uses about refining. This idea of saying that with pure metal, you put it into a fire and all the junk is burnt away and you're just left with the pure silver or the pure gold. So there's a sense where maybe God's able to take away all of the junk stuff even the junk emotions that are attached to memories, but leave us with the purest sense of what those are supposed to be that we can take with us into eternity. Again, we don't really know the answer. Next question. There is no pain, no death, no anger, etc. in the new heaven and new earth. Will there be new life, like people being born in the new heaven and the new earth? So guess what the answer is? We don't really know, but this one I would say, <laughs> we can pretty convincingly say probably not because there's nothing in scripture that indicates that there is going to be new life in heaven. There's no indications that people are going to have babies when we live in heaven. Uh, all that we read about, all that we understand is about taking this life into the next life, not a sense of new life being birthed there. So we don't know that definitively. God can do whatever he wants, but we would say probably not. And then the last question, which was one of my favourites since I left it to last. In heaven, is there a quiet place for introverts who hate crowds? 
fantastic question. And I'm sure that's because often when we've talked about heaven, we've talked about this idea of feasting together and hanging out and having a great time. And some of us who are more introverted are like, I can think of nothing worse than having to put up with people all of the time. So is there somewhere quiet for me to go and just have a bit of time by myself? Because if not, that doesn't sound like heaven kind of sounds like the other place. So we don't really know, again, what the answer is to this. Maybe we all become extroverts. But I would say that that kind of invalidates this whole idea that we're raised as ourselves, our soul, our character, who we are. If we become someone completely different, that's not really us being ourselves. I do believe genuinely that God knows us and that God knows what is best for us. And so my answer would be, with no reference to Scripture whatsoever, that I do think that there has to be places, and maybe this is what Jesus was getting to about going and preparing a room for us, that we will all have space where we can go. We will all have a beach that we can sit next to where we can just be by ourselves and allow the waves to roll in. We'll all have a nice quiet room where we can sit by the fire and read a book. We'll all have quiet, safe places that we can go to. But I also think there's an element where we won't be so tired. <laughs> we won't hate crowds anymore because we won't be as exhausted as we often are here on earth. And so there's an element where we'll probably be able to spend a bit more time together. But I do think there's got to be a sense of us being able to be ourselves and to enjoy the things that we know we experience the most, especially in the ways that we connect with God. So... There you go, lots and lots of questions, particularly lots about heaven, with very, very few answers. And as I was going through, I was like, I don't know, uh, what about this? I don't know, what about this? I don't know, what about this? But I actually think that that's really helpful because it reminds us that that's also true in the way that we follow Jesus. Ultimately, as we follow Jesus, we don't all have the answers. There are lots and lots of questions that all of us have. And it's good for us to explore some of the ideas about that, but ultimately, we can get to a point of being able to say we always know enough. Even if we don't have a definitive answer, we always know enough to be able to take our next step. So as we think about these questions around heaven, for example, or about what happens after we die, we can recognise the same thing. We have lots of questions. We don't know lots of the answers. But what do we know? We do know that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be welcomed into God's family forever. That's true. We do know that God is love. And so whatever our experience of living with God is going to be, it's going to be filled with all of the things that are all about love, joy, peace, contentment. We do know that there will be no pain or sadness or grief. We do know that we get glimpses of what that life is going to be like in the here and now. And so we can have confidence that whatever it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. We don't know exactly what that is, but we know enough to be able to take our next steps. But we also know that's not something we have to wait for. And this is a key thing for us, which has been a massive shift in theology, particularly through the last century. It's to say it's not about us just having to wait for eternity, wait until the time is right. Our genuine belief is that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to experience that in the here and now. So the challenge to us as we go into the rest of today, as we go into the rest of this week, is to say those things that I'm yearning for and craving, Jesus has done enough for me to be able to be the one who helps those things become a reality. Not just for me, but for the people that I interact with this week. So for all of us, let's get on with living eternity in the here and now, knowing that whatever it's going to be like, it's going to be really amazing. So I'm going to pray, and then Ash is going to come and lead us around the communion table. Let's pray.
God, we do know that in some ways we would love to have more answers, that sometimes we just wish that everything was simple, that it came down to being able to say, what about this? And then we get an answer to it. But we know that you have called us to be people of faith and that being people of faith means that we trust in something that we don't have all the answers for. And so we thank you that that's what you call us to, to be people who continue to journey and continue to process. But we thank you that you accept us as we are, that it isn't about us getting ourselves together enough. It's not about us trying to answer all of the questions, being able to solve the mystery so that ultimately we can unlock what you've got for us. But that life with you is about living out of what you have done for us, living out of the confidence of Jesus, what you have shown us through your life, your teaching, your death and your resurrection. That as we go into this week, we don't have to try and prove ourselves. We don't have to earn your love, your favour. We can live out of the truth that you have given all of that to us as a gift. That all of those things that we looked at from Ephesians are true of us right now. That's how you see us right now as we sit here. And so I pray that you would continue to challenge us and continue to encourage us about the ways in which you see us, which are often so different to the ways in which we see ourselves. Help us to be people who live out of what you have given us. Help us to be people who have this sense of hope about what the future looks like, about what eternity is going to be like. But help us to be people who take the best of that and live that out in our daily lives here as we connect with the people that we interact with through this week, our families, our friends, our neighbours, as we go back to school, as we go back to uni, as we go to work, in all the different places that we go. Help us to be people who help others to catch a vision of what life has always been designed to be and what you've given us the privilege of being able to live. In your name we pray. Amen.